Welcome to Trowadron Legends and Lore. Episode 33, Tagaran and Azrin. Well, hello and welcome to Trollodon Legends and Lore. I'm Chad Corey, and today we're going to continue where we've been uh, continuing, I guess, with each episode here, talking, taking a look at the various demonic princes that tie into the world of Trollodon and how they have cults and their influence across uh, not just the planet, but also the cosmos in general. I hope you've been enjoying this. I've been enjoying uh, sharing this with you. Some of this stuff is kind of spoilerish because it's not things that, is, that are readily known in the books or publications that are planned right now. So hopefully, like I said, you're enjoying the inside information as it were. We're going to continue today with two new fiendish princes actually doing a split here. We're going to finish up the demonic princes with Tagaren. And then we're going to look at a demonic devil with Azrin. So let's begin with Tagaren. Now his title might give you a little bit of a clue to what he's about. He's called the Debaucher. And he is a 15-foot tall, brown-haired, yellow-eyed, very obese, green-skinned individual. Uh, he's a massive round, he's a massive flab, excuse me flabby mound of green-colored flesh. The demonic prince is quite morbidly obese, unable even to walk under his own power, having to be carried instead from place to place via a throne made just for that purpose. His yellow eyes seem to bulge out slightly from his sockets due to the excessive flab, and his head is shaved except for a small patch of hair he keeps in the back that falls into a foot-long braid. The demonic prince wears little but a black breechcloth attached to a very wide and thick belt. Other than this, he wears a handful of necklaces, varied in shapes and sizes and style. He's too fat and unable to move enough to wear armor, and doesn't take any weapons, only using access to the cosmic element of, en of evil to help protect and defend him along with his throne bearers. And let's talk a little bit about his court here. Uh, Tagaran makes himself out to be more than what he really is demonic prince in league with some local lords of evil to help guide and watch some passes in the nearby mountains where he keeps his fortress kingdom of Rolos. He long ago realized it was better to side with the lords of evil than fight against them, and for this occasional service of returning wayward prisoners their way and keeping them informed of other fiendish news, he gets to keep his realm and even added protection should it ever be challenged. This leaves him free to indulge in his sadistic vices of death sport, torture, and other sensual affairs. Most of his rule is carried out by the five demonic lords he has in his care, who keep things running smoothly. There are three other greater demons uh, who see to the rest, watching over the thousand or so demons and incarnates who act as his army as well as dwellers in the fortress town. And while he does, his, does not trust his people to some extent, he always keeps a personal guard of ten demons around him at just about all times, and these ten rotate in carrying the fat demonic prince's throne, having forwarded time to the task six on protection duty. Uh, Tagarin isn't interested in going too big or bold with his actions. He's happy to keep the smaller threats away and maintain what he's been enjoying. 
though he isn't against looking at anything else that might open him up for still more increase in every good thing, just not keen on putting too much effort or risk into the effort to attain it. And those who serve him might not share in such an outlook, but it has helped him survive in his current place and rank longer than other demonic princes across the centuries. When it comes to his cult, Tagarin spreads a message of debauched delights. To any he can tempt, he calls for degrading other former morals and perceived ways of orderly living and to embrace a wild gluttonous and pleasure-seeking existence instead. Part of the cult's designs, besides allowing venues and ways to indulge these vices, is to also weaken the moral codes and standards of the communities in which they live. Tagarin takes some pleasure in seeking how far he can bring anyone low. The second part of the cults is actually taking whom they see as innocent and corrupting them through what amounts to an orgy with these innocents being made to suffer from rape, torture, and the like. The final part of this process is the actual sacrificing of these victims as trophies of corruption for Tagarin's glory. It isn't uncommon the more debased his followers grow for them to even eat parts of the victims as well as further celebrate as a further celebration of the demonic prince. Tagarin himself only rewards his followers with new insights into deeper and more damaging forms of debauchery, taking them to a point where they either die from overindulgence or enter a place where they are no longer able to control themselves and are easier for him to manipulate for his various ends. Naturally, such actions repulse most people, and those who do find out about the cult are quick to do something about it, and the more debauched the cult gets, the more often they're exposed and make mistakes, opening their once hidden ways to the public. Naturally, the light gods and more lawful persons are quick to act against them, but even the gray gods can get cannot let, can only let things go so far. The dark gods and their followers, too, since at some point the cultist actions tend to affect their own affairs and plans or even common perception among the larger population. And what do we call these followers? Well, they're basically called Tagarites. And again, they can kind of come from a wide selection of population as far as demographic goes, but anyone who can be tempted with their being free from perceived moral restraint of any kind, and they want to delve into any and all forms of debauchery, pleasure, whatever the case might be, whatever the temptation is, he can find a way to get to him, pull him in, and bring him into the cult. Their symbol for Tagarin is called the cankering chalice. And it's a simple chalice often depicted as golden over a burgundy-colored background. When used as a pendant, the chalice is carved in bas relief over a bronze or brass disc about two inches in diameter. The pendant often uh, hangs from a burgundy-colored cord. And as far as outfits go, they have a little bit more of an organization as far as the dress-up goes. That kind of ties into their whole pleasure-seeking aspect. Uh, when they gather, they're supposed to wear rich burgundy robes, and these, these can be made of silk, velvet, or other rich or highly sensual fabrics. Over this, they wear a burgundy hood and attached stoles. The stoles and the edges of the hood are etched in golden thread, and priests also wear a golden sash around their waist and also don the, the cankering chalice at all times. And there's no real special outfit for any other events or special uh, occasions. That's just kind of their normal dress. Again, it ties into their snazzy-looking duds and looking good for the uh, debauched pleasures and all that kind of stuff. Uh, While there's no sacred text like we've been talking about in previous episodes for most of these cults, he does have a a few tenets, if you want to call them that, people are subscribing to, or at least what he promotes and and advocates in his cults in general. 
These kind of consists of, if it feels good, do it. Life is short, enjoy all of it you can. Codes and conduct are not for others to impose. Morality is a mutable thing. Obviously, like we said, not, not a big fan for some people based on those belief systems. Uh, Tagorites, when they die, hold that they will spend the rest of their afterlife in Rolos, the domain of the debaucher, as he is often called. And here they believe they'll get to enjoy endless lives of pleasure unlike anything they've ever known in their mortal lives. And of course, we know that isn't exactly true. It's maybe going to be debauched pleasure for Tangren because he's going to be doing sick and twisted things to his followers whenever the mood strikes him for all eternity. So again, maybe not the best person you want to spend the rest of your life worshiping or, or hoping to get to when you die. He, has, he is also another demonic prince who has not had a direct influence on Trollodon as far as influencing different races or creatures and altering them in different ways. So he hasn't had a super strong direct influence on different races or cultures, shall we say, in that sense, but still makes his presence known through his cults and just general philosophy as well in the, the world at large. Okay, now let's transition into the first demon, or devilish prince, excuse me, Azrin. Azrin resembles a 15-foot-tall titan with clawed hands and long, silvery-white hair and patriarchal beard. His pale gray flesh and icy blue eyes only adds to the offsetting nature of his appearance. Though he may look old and possibly feeble, he is far from it and has a powerful, deep voice that often startles many who first hear it, given his appearance. He's also called the Dark Sage, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, what that means in a moment. He wears robes and hooded cloaks, with the hood always drawn, helping to hide his face and features. The garb varies in color and design based on his mood and the occasion. He tends to enjoy keeping to boots, though for footwear, and is thought to have some hidden materials attached to his belt under his cloak or perhaps placed in hidden pockets in it. Azrin also enjoys wearing some golden bracers carved with some geometric designs and then a couple rings on each hand. Other than this, he lacks any other adornment. When in combat, Azrin makes use of throwing daggers. He keeps hidden on his person. He also has a normal dagger he uses for up-close encounters. Azrin does not wear armor, but does make use of his mastery over the cosmic element of evil to protect himself with barriers, shields, and the like. Let's talk a little bit about his court. Azrin's court is unique in that he holds to a rather large region in the second level of the abyss that keeps him moving from fortress to fortress in order to keep control. He relies on his devilish lords for maintaining a place in his absence, having ten of them assigned to each fortress to do just that. He also makes use of some 22 greater devils and then about 20,000 devils and abysmal incarnates who make up the rest of his armies. The region he controls is varied in terrain and allowing him plenty of ways to master resources and even form caravans and other means of getting goods and services out of his realm and into others for still more enrichment as, he, as, allowing, as well as allowing subtle spine in other places those caravans travel through. Those who are ruled over by him see him as a rather fair ruler, not being overly harsh or cruel, but not one to coddle anyone either. But while there are, may be a semblance of freedom about the place, all know full well they're under his heel, and he can crush their necks at any time. Now, Azrin is unique, and he's one of the first devilish princes we talk about here that has a hand in twisting and corrupting some of the races on Trollodon. 
For the most part, he's credited with the corruption of some Lenorms and the subsequent creation of the dragons. While most don't even remember or even honor their creator, they have been a few on the occasion who have tried seeking him out in hopes of bettering their own lives. These, though, who seek such fiendish promises were soon shown the air of such misplaced hope and desires. Now, a little bit about his cult here. Uh, those who seek out Azrin are limited in number. He uses the people to locate and retrieve old information and material from the fiend's time on the world, as well as spies on what is going on in various places. He also uses his followers to gain more knowledge and various items of interest, often in the religious, technological, and magical arenas. He is able to tempt his followers with promises of hidden, forbidden, and dark secrets and power in exchange for their service. But to prove their loyalty and worth of such boons, he, is, he has them undertake various assignments and even some gruesome acts, each more tasking and devastating from the last. The first is the renouncing of the pantheon and swearing total allegiance to him, pledging themselves to him spirit, soul, and body. When they wish more insight, they must take the life of an innocent in a sacrifice to him. At a higher levels, they have to sacrifice the life of someone precious to them, Finally, when Azrin is tired of using them, or they have served their usefulness, he offers to reward them with the greatest of insights, but they have to totally sacrifice themselves to him to attain it. This is a trick that gets them to take their own lives and provides them an entrance to the abyss where they become his servants for all eternity. Again, those sacrifices are called for in between various actions or service and missions they undertake for him. His cults tend to be short-lived, none really lasting more than a generation at most, since the cycle by which the followers t travel tends to destroy them in the end. Their actions often attract unwanted attention in time, the increase in sacrifices tending only to increase that discovery. Priests of Drayden have also been schooled on how to detect such cults, since Azarin traffics in such things that, claim, that are claimed by Drayden, such dark insight in the wrong hands is detrimental for the safety of everyone, they claim. Most others simply dislike them for their dark deeds and are only too happy to root them out and put an end to them entirely. Those who follow him are called Azrinites, and they don't have a holy text like we talked about before, but they do have some tenets they subscribe to, three in particular that I'll share right now. They are, the more that's forsaken the more that's gained, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward. He who looks back is not fit to advance. And their holy symbol is called the dark seal and consists of a skull without a lower jaw resting above two crossed rolled scrolls. This used, is used on pendants, the image carved in bas relief on two-inch circular disc of varying material and attached to a leather throng, thong. Well, they do not really display this in general population, obviously. They don't want people to know what they're about, but that typically is worn by priests for most of the time, especially in, in ceremonies in general. And speaking of what priests wear, it's going back to black robes, the matching hood, uh, hooded cloaks when they gather, and these hoods are always to remain drawn so they can keep themselves hidden and secretive. And priests will often keep a dagger with them to use for sacrifices when called for. And that's basically their, their entire normal garb. There's no ceremonial garb or anything else. It's just kind of the usual default outfit they wear when engaged in their ceremonies. And I think that is 
where we're going to find the information I can share right now with you on, on Azrin. Hopefully it was of a benefit to you. I think the fun thing that I wanted to share about that was this creation of the dragons. Obviously, tied into that, Grithkal isn't going to be too excited or happy about that since Grithkal created the Norms. And he's kind of since then claimed dragons as his own as well, thinking of them kind of a natural evolutionary step, if you want to call it that, from his creation. So he's trying to redeem the dragons on one hand, while Aldrin is trying to sometimes use them or just corrupt them, continue to uh, despoil them for his own purposes. So I think that's where we're going to end it today for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. And we will see you next month. This podcast is copyright Chad Corey. All rights reserved.